Today, being Palm Sunday, I want to go over that triumphal entry of Christ. So let's, uh, let's uh, pray to him again and ask for his blessing of our time and our study. Father, thank you so much. You are so gracious and good to us. You are so merciful to us uh, that you would use the foolishness of the message preached to share your word, to share your gospel. That you would use imperfect people such as ourselves for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And there is a ministry to which you have fit us all and you have called us all. Help us not to come short in that. Uh, To whatever extent, whatever the scope may be, help us to be faithful. To be those ones who are found faithful in that day. And that as you uh, meet us in eternity, we would be those who would hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to be faithful, whether in the little things or the, the bigger things to which you've called us, and thereby to give you glory. As we look to your word today, meet us here. Speak to us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to be uh, this morning visiting the gospel accounts and some of the precedent for the triumphal entry or what we would refer to as Palm Sunday. And I think the best place to start is in the book of Daniel. It may not initially seem to be the the place where you would start with that, but there is a the, the occurrence that we are observing and celebrating today was prophesied by Daniel to the exact day. And so I want to get to that first. In Daniel chapter nine, we're going to start in verse twenty. Daniel 9, verses 20 through 26a. We're getting into something that is popularly known as the 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel writes as follows in Daniel 9, 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, And presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, is so while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. 
The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Here we have a definite timeline for a fulfillment of this specific prophecy. When the world talks of prophecy, or perhaps other religions speak of prophecy, there's this nebulous idea about what exactly they mean. How many of us, maybe back in the 80s, when all the tabloids were publishing the latest prophecy of Nostradamus, see how he foretold the assassination of JFK, and all these other things that are happening, right? And you could read those things. And I, I ended up buying a book of Nostradamus' prophecies and trying to read through them. They are, I don't know if any of you guys have seen them, but they are so vague as to be able to prophesy almost anything for any decade or anybody. If you want to just kind of fit it in there, then you can. This is not like that. This has a very definite period of time and the prophecy that you find in Scripture is unlike any prophecy that you will find elsewhere in any other religion. God is outside of time and He proves who He is and He proves the validity of all of Scripture based on that fact. Based on His ability to accurately like very accurately, foretell what's going to happen. Now, our, I think there's a mistake if we study prophecy for prophecy's sake only. I think if we are only looking at prophecy and we are looking to know the future, I think we're missing the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is to drive us to the God who has given the prophecy. And I think all of Scripture is intended not to answer all of our questions about the future, but to draw us closer and closer to Christ. So, this 70 weeks prophecy, while very compelling, its purpose is clear, and that is to draw our attention to Christ, to have an understanding in a greater way of who He is. And so we have here, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? Israel, the Jews, right? That's his people. Consequently, that's also God's chosen people. He didn't give up on the nation of Israel. They do play, as far as I can see from Scripture, an important prophetic role uh, from now until the end. Uh, And it... Praise God. You know, I mean, many of them are rebels against his kingdom. And yet, for whatever reason, he has still chosen them. He still loves them. He still calls them. Though their hearts may be hard toward him in large part until the the present day, I don't believe that he's done with them. And I think a study of scripture proves he's not done with them yet. Uh, You know, go to what Paul would write about them in the book of Romans. You know, Paul's own heart, Paul Paul himself being Jewish. uh, It's not as though they are consigned or or fated to somehow be consigned to um, judgment. But he would call out to them specially even now. But anyway, 
70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So particularly talking about Israel and particularly talking about the city of Jerusalem in this. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. How's that going to happen? If I were alive during Daniel's time, here's Jerusalem kind of laid waste. All of Israel has been taken captive into Babylon. And my big question would be, how could this even happen? How could this even be? And I'd say until 1948, many of us would be um, justified in saying, I don't know how that could even happen. The saints of old, you know, Matthew Henry himself, they didn't see how that could happen. And so that led to some different interpretation of Scripture. Well, There's obviously no way that Israel can be reformed as a nation in their own land. Uh, And so the prophecies... They must not mean what we think they mean. They must mean something for the church in particular and not about Israel as a nation. And so we have this replacement theology that kind of came into the church. Now, I don't fault our brothers and sisters from previous generations for um, misinterpreting the scripture in those ways. They honestly had no idea. I think that's a greater testament to us of the miraculous work that the Lord did in 1948 and even to the the present time. But this is very clearly dealing with the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel was going to be instrumental in bringing about the end of transgression and end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, and bringing in everlasting righteousness. Now, the laws of Israel were intended to preserve the nation of Israel and its culture in a particular way to result in one particular person. And that is Jesus Christ himself. The law wasn't meant just to be uh, a standard of perfection, but it was meant to be something that would keep the nation uh, healthy and pure uh, as they would go through their generations until God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And so this prophecy here is particularly about that Messiah who would come. He says, uh, and this is very important in verse 25, the way that he says it, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And so this is what we're marking. There's going to be a time, not just when, you know, the command is made to go rebuild the temple, but actually to rebuild the city, restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So those of you who have read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize Ezra went first to rebuild the temple and then Nehemiah went after that to rebuild the city. So particularly Daniel is prophesying there is going to be a specific command to restore and build Jerusalem as a whole. And so that's what we need to look at as our starting point here. There will be seven weeks first and 62 weeks. So for a grand total of 69 weeks. Now this is not calendar weeks, but this is a way of talking about 
uh, seven-year periods. There are going to be 69 seven-year periods. And after this command is given at a definite point in time to definitely restore and build Jerusalem, 69 weeks of years later, this is when the Messiah is going to come. This is when He's going to be revealed. And so what we're celebrating today is that day. Uh, it's, it really is interesting because um, it, it seems to be, uh, you can look at a couple of different reckonings. Um, I think Sir Robert Anderson, he had some groundbreaking work in trying to figure out the, um, the chronology or the breakdown of exactly when these dates were. Um, there's another uh, another person that I think probably may be more accurate, which is Dr. Harold Honer, and you can look into those. But they actually have calculated out uh, exactly what does this mean. Uh, and they would base it on 360-day years. You, you guys realize that the calendar has not always been 365.24219879 days for a year you know, requiring every four years for there to be a leap year. Uh, but calendars have been held and, and marked based on different events throughout human history. So there is some scholarship that needs to go into figuring out exactly, you know, like what does this mean in common terms. I'll boil it all down to this. It seems as though this day, um, you know, the, the original day that... Uh, the command was made would have been on March 5th, 444 B.C. And that this day that we're talking about today and that we are celebrating today took place on Monday, March 30th, 33 A.D. The crucifixion itself taking place on Friday, April 3rd, uh, A.D. 33. Now, again, our months are different. Our calendar is different from that, but just kind of calculating it out. And I, again, I don't want to go into all of the details of that, the scholarship of that. I have it in my notes right here if you would like to look at it. But uh, I want to really make sure that we are spending our time looking at the events of this day in particular. There is so much that's written about this, especially last week of Christ's time on earth leading up to the, the crucifixion. But I really want to just focus on this day throughout the gospel accounts. And so let's move on to the book of Matthew. We'll work our way through each of the gospel accounts and uh, we'll finish off in the book of John. So Matthew 21 verse 1 is where we'll kind of start with this. Matthew 21, 1 through 17. And there are some things that I want to highlight in each of these accounts as we go along, uh, because there are different perspectives. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have really taken the time to figure out why is it that there are four Gospels. seems like if the historical account is recounted once, you know, like in a history book, that should be sufficient. And yet, in the New Testament... To start it right off, we have four different accounts of the same life. So why is that? I'll tell you there are different reasons that each of the books were written. And there are different 
specific audiences. Um, and so there are different perspectives as well. With any, anything that occurs, there are going to be different perspectives from different observers who have different backgrounds. And the book of Matthew itself was written with a special emphasis on the fulfillment of prophecy because it was written to the Jews primarily. So you will see the book of Matthew is not as concerned with being chronologically accurate as it is um, really highlighting the prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ. That's why you'll see so many Old Testament quotations as you go through the book of Matthew. And so we'll see that here in Matthew 21. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this you'll find in Zechariah 9.9, 9, this, this exact prophecy. So Matthew is hearkening back to the prophet Zechariah. He's not just sticking with the major prophets, but... You know, I mean, the Lord has spoken through all of his word in the Old Testament. And so you will find frequent citations of those Old Testament books. Uh, verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So, what trees? It doesn't say right here. Just says they're cutting down branches from trees and they're bringing them. This being Palm Sunday, we have an assumption, but right here it does not say. And I think that's important as well. We have some traditions that are built in our own minds, but we need to be very careful to look at exactly what the scripture says and, uh, and to have understanding based on that. Uh, one of the greatest things uh, that was detrimental for my understanding of the book of Exodus from when I was younger was the movie The Ten Commandments. Now, that may seem blasphemous to say, oh, are you saying that you don't revere Charlton Heston in that role as Moses? I mean, that's our whole concept of who Moses is. Well, Hollywood and the Scripture sometimes find themselves at odds. And it's important for us to have a concept of what actually happened in the book of Exodus based on the word itself. And so it's, I think, problematic for us to depend too much on visual and dramatic depictions of biblical events before we have a solid grounding in the Word of God. Not that there's no profit to those things, but when there's a conflict between the passion of the Christ, for example, and the Gospel, we need to take our authority from the Gospel. How insidious it is, something that comes in through the eye gate and through the ear gate can totally disrupt what the Word would say. 
So just as an aside, be on your guard for that. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So I want to, now that we're, we've passed through verse 9 here, here's another prophecy. And I want to spend some time with this source of that prophecy. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 29. So if you'll join me in Psalm 118. Let's look at this particular one. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, Psalm 118. Now, the section that is quoted, and I think you'll find, again, through the book of Matthew, a lot of these quotations. But even in this final week, there are things that Christ would say, and he's doing it for a purpose, to draw our attention back to these Old Testament scriptures, to give some clarification and some clarity, maybe a a deeper working of what exactly is going on in that moment. With just a phrase... He can set off just, you know, like a ton of Old Testament study and clarification of some of those Old Testament writings. And so here we have uh, a clarification of what's meant in Psalm 118. So again, we'll start in verse 22, because I think this is kind of um, moving into this week. What exactly is happening and the fulfillment of that. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, so this section right here is going to happen just a little bit later here. Um, However, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And so this word Hosanna, meaning save now, we see the sentiment right here in verse 25. Then this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Binds the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And so as Matthew is citing this particular section of Psalm 118, can't you see how this is exactly what is happening during this time, during this triumphal entry? Something that I I guess I omitted saying as we were going over the, the 70 weeks prophecy is this. Throughout all of the Gospels, probably you've noticed Christ saying, you know, I don't want you to make a big deal out of this miracle. I don't want you to make a big deal out of who I am. And it wasn't because he wasn't who he is. It was because there was that particular date, that particular day when he was to be revealed to the nation as the Messiah. And so... um, Whenever you're looking through the gospel, some people will say Christ denied his own divinity, but he didn't. He just was waiting to really punctuate 
in this event, yes, that prophecy is now fulfilled. You know, now that Christ has come. So anyway, um, back into Matthew 21. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So prophet being one who speaks for God. Not necessarily one who foretells the future, although that can be an aspect of prophecy, as we saw in Daniel's prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy. But also the foretelling of God's word is prophetic. If you speak to somebody the word of the Lord, and especially speaking the word of the Lord to them, as it applies to them, that is prophetic. So, they're not entirely wrong in calling Jesus a prophet, or the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. However, I think they're also largely missing out. Even his own disciples, right, are missing out on who he truly is. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Wow. <laughs> that If you know who these people are, he's like breaking their bones with a phrase. Wait, didn't you read... Then you read the scriptures. These are the guys who pride themselves on being the authority of the scriptures. And he's like, I guess you didn't read that part, did you? Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Again, a hearkening back to the Old Testament. There are, are treasures in the Old Testament that are uncovered and illuminated for us in the life and ministry of Christ. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So this is the end of this day, according to Matthew's account. He has this showdown with the Pharisees. He kind of um, clarifies what's happening based on Old Testament scripture. Uh, he doesn't deny who he is. He doesn't deny the righteousness of what these children are saying. It's an awesome thing. We're going to continue to see this account repeated, but with a slightly different perspective as we move into the book of Mark, chapter 11. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. In Mark 11, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, 
He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Now again, don't picture this as these men just uh, kind of stripping down. It would be like taking your coat off and putting your coat there. Um, and, and that's what's happening. Again, this is a sign of respect to Jesus that they would do this. Uh, they don't have the local Walmart where they can go and get, you know, uh, fairly reasonably priced items to wear. Uh, the clothes that you had, you pretty well, you had very few sets of clothing. This is why, again, looking back at the book of Judges, it was significant that Samson, as part of his dowry, had to go and collect clothing for his groomsmen um, because this was something of great value in the ancient world. So these people are taking these very valuable items to them, these things that are scarce for themselves, and they are putting it over this animal, and they are making this cushioned seat for Christ on this donkey on which no one has ever sat before. So, and many spread their clothes on the road. Again, don't, don't overlook the significance of what they're doing here, the statement that they are making. This is something very valuable to them, very dear to them, that they are putting in the road for this animal to walk across. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What are they putting on the road? Leafy branches. Does it tell us exactly what kind of branches they are putting on the road? It doesn't. It says leafy branches. Okay, so I can kind of, kind of get there with palms. I'm not saying, by the way, that these are not palm branches. I'm just pointing out that the scripture at this point is not emphasizing that. Has not really made that case. We call this Palm Sunday. But so far in Matthew and Mark, they're not saying Palm. That's not really the emphasis for them. Uh, maybe we could call it clothing on animals and roads Sunday. That's, that's also something that's significant here. Um, but there's not a big emphasis made on the palms themselves. So um, cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, again, this word, Hosanna. We sang it this morning. And they've recounted it in the book of Matthew. Hosanna, this plea, save, Lord, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, again, uh, I want you to understand that through all of this, there is an emphasis on Jesus' kingly authority. These people are, are coming and they are receiving him as they would receive a king. They are laying down very um, 
meaningful items in their life before this king. They have surrendered the uh, use of this very special animal uh, for him. And uh, they are receiving him and saying, save now. I guarantee you they don't understand what they needed to be saved from at this point. How many of us, as we walk through our life, uh, maybe our life before Christ, there were all kinds of situations that we thought we needed to be saved from, and yet that one big thing kind of eluded us. We didn't realize the one big thing that we needed saving from was from our sins and from the wages of our sins. And yet they're calling out, save Lord, save now. You know, uh, most likely the thing that was at the top of their mind is save us from Rome. Save us from this governmental system. He had bigger plans than that. The Roman government was eventually going to fall under its own weight. But the salvation that he came to bring was not just a temporary salvation. was not just something that would impact these people for a few decades on this earth. He came to bring salvation that would last forever. And for all people, whoever have and whoever will, put their confidence in this sacrifice. You know, the, the Old Testament saints died in faith that this was coming. And we look back in faith that this payment was enough for us, was sufficient for us. So, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Uh, so, when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We don't see a lot of the cleansing of the temple in Mark's account. This is true to Mark's account through this gospel. Um, allegedly, Mark is probably the young boy that was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was taken, the one who left his garment and fled. Um, it, it is widely believed that Mark's account is based on Peter's retelling and recounting of the gospel. And so from Peter and Mark's perspectives of what was going on, they emphasized different things than what Matthew did. Also, uh, there is some thought that Matthew, given his vocation was as a Roman tax collector, he would have had um, the ability to write in uh, his own sort of shorthand. And so that's the reason why the Gospel of Matthew is so, more, so much more substantial in many ways than others of the Gospel, because he could take down Jesus' words verbatim as he's going. He would have that skill. So, Luke 19 is where we're going to move next. Luke 19, starting in verse 29. We're going to go through verse 48. Luke 19, 29 through 48. And it came to pass... When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, 
that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. So again, Jesus demonstrating this kingly authority, the ability to command and to receive the thing that he has commanded. He commands for this colt, and the colt is delivered. Uh, And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you, and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children within you to the ground, And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, And the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. I want to go back through this with a little bit of highlighting. Verses 39 and 40 here. Uh, Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Uh, Jesus' disputation with the Pharisees right here we have on display. Uh, If the people who were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, uh, if they were wrong, and if Jesus truly was godly, then he would have told them, he would have rebuked them and said, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not right. How often do we see, even in the book of Revelation, or when some of the uh, prophets are visited by angels, and there's this overwhelming urge to worship, when they're like, whoa, 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 nope, 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 wrong, incorrect, don't do this. And here Jesus says, you know what? If I were to tell them, even the stones would cry out, would immediately cry out. What they're saying is so right that it has to be said. And if it's not said by these people, well, 
Different people have said the stones may be uh, talking about the Gentiles who may have been in their midst. Other people would say these are the actual literal stones that are on the, the roadway as they're passing. Either way, it doesn't matter. Uh, Jesus is worthy of this praise and he will not restrain it. He is not going to restrain you when you praise him because he's worthy of it and he will receive it. Verses 41 through 44. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. In this, you see two things. One, you see Christ's compassion for the city of Jerusalem, which will receive him now and in very short order will universally call for his crucifixion. You also see his foreknowledge. You understand that he knows what's coming. He's not riding into Jerusalem with any pretense that these people truly are welcoming him as a king for all times. They are, in this moment, caught up in the fervor, you know, praising him as they should, but that this is quickly going to disappear. This is quickly going to reverse to where the crowd is whipped up to say, crucify him, crucify him. Not just get him out of our city, but capital punishment for the things that he's saying. This is an incredible thing, that he would know the offenses that were going to be committed by these people and would still proceed in love, would still endure the horror, the pain, the shame and humiliation of the cross to bring about salvation. How many of us have brought shame to the name of Christ through our conduct? And He knew it in advance. He knew it as He's here on this road. And He is proceeding with His fate set like a flint to the cross. If you ever doubt His love for you, recall this moment. He could have stopped everything. He could have said, nope, time out. I'm out. He knew perfectly what he was riding into. And as the manliest of all men, as the greatest of all lovers, he proceeds. He knew you individually. He knew me individually. He knew the ways that I would fail him he knew the ways I would dishonor him. And he proceeded like a man. He proceeded fueled by love and obedience for the Father. What an awesome thing. He's not just there for the good times. He's not just there for the accolades. He knows the depths. He knows the blackness of our own hearts. He knows the reality of our own situation. And still, straight, his face set like a flint to work our salvation, 
to work reconciliation for us. Glory to Him. Look at verses 45 to 48. Then He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Wait, 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 wait. These are the religious authorities in this civilization. This is the order that was set up in this civilization for worshiping God that He is putting Himself in direct contradiction to. He just strides right in to the temple, the holiest site in all of the earth, and He starts cleaning house. He doesn't do it rebelliously. This is not Christ in rebellion. He does it because He is the superseding authority. And He is setting things right in this moment. You know, uh, probably not long after this, they return to business as usual. But God makes His statement here. Christ makes His statement as Lord over this house. He comes into this system that is ripping off these people in, and exploiting their desire to worship the one true God. And He makes a divine statement, a divine judgment against them. It is written, My house is a, pray, a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He is not... Oh no, what's the... What is the uh, general consensus? What are the polls going to be like if I do this? Is this a populist move uh, in order to gain me some kind of uh, reputation? No, he's not concerned with it at all. Zeal for your house has eaten me up, is what the Scripture says. He, uh, he has one focus, and that is that we would be unhindered by religion or anything else from coming before the throne of God. He is there to make the way open for all of us, especially you and me, fellow Gentile. You know, they had taken the court of the Gentiles and they had turned it into a mini mall for sacrifices and they had forced out the Gentiles. He was like so angered by this. He was so righteously wrathful toward this exploitation. We are sheep in the midst of wolves, and Christ will shortly, in a similar fashion, come and set all things right, but this time once and for all. Let's move on to John 12, and I would like to spend the balance of our time, our seven minutes, going over John 12, 12 through 50. Oh, by the way, what did they put down on the, on the roads, according to Luke? Clothes. Did he even say anything about branches in the Gospel of Luke? Kind of an interesting thing. Again, not to say palms are not important or Palm Sunday is insignificant. Those things are important. But sometimes we we give names to things not because they were heavily emphasized in Scripture, but because it's more relatable for us. It's more tangible for us. Okay, John 12, 12 through 50. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees. All right, finally. 
We've seen leafy branches. We've seen various branches. Here we go. All right. Taking branches of palm trees. It's right here in the Gospel of John. So again, it's not unbiblical to say that this is Palm Sunday. But this is where we get that from. Only in this Gospel. Took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So kind of interesting how other perspectives focus in on Jesus' preparation, you know, like sending his disciples ahead to gather this donkey. And here, Luke, or John kind of puts it as an afterthought. Oh yeah, and the donkey was here and he was put on it. So, you know, just like none of us will see the same event in exactly the same way and report with the exact same detail, so in the gospel accounts, there are minor differences through it which don't detract from the authenticity of the events, but rather bolster it. Because if every one of them said with the exact same words, the exact same things about the exact same events, you would have to question, you know, like, did these guys corroborate? Did these guys get together and say, now let's get our story straight. We stole Jesus' body, but we want to make this believable. Clearly, when you look at the gospel and the way that the gospels are written, you see that that's not the case. You know, um, we're going to go into this as well and see even to the point where the disciples will say unflattering things about themselves. You don't do this if you are just trying to write a narrative that makes you look good or is just looking solely to promote one person. I mean, we know that from the political seasons that we go through, right? Everybody trying to paint themselves in the best possible light. This is not like that. This is something altogether different. This is a genuine and authentic retelling from four perspectives of actual events from Jesus who actually lived and actually went through these things. He was actually foretold and the Old Testament scripture was actually fulfilled at this point. So then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. So again, the fulfillment of prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Again, you know, if I'm writing the story about myself, I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, I saw it all the way. I understood this beginning to end if I'm trying to make myself look good. These guys are like, we had no clue. We didn't even know. Uh, they didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. This was not a concerted effort. They weren't like, okay, let's see. We need, we got this list of prophecies and let's check off these prophecies so that we can make a case for Jesus being the Messiah. They're saying there are incidental things that happened that check these boxes. This is going to happen with the Messiah. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So you have some people that are here and they are coming for the curiosity. 
The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So this is what they're saying to each other. Like, we've got to, like, put an end to this. This is way out of control. They're making up these things about Lazarus, but, you know, as much as you want to suppress the story, it's getting out. Um, so they wanted to suppress the story, but there were too many witnesses, and the witnesses were present there. You know, the, the actions of Christ were not just actions that were done amongst a few people, and you have to take the word for it. But there were numerous witnesses to the things that he did. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So you have some who come for the curiosity of seeing Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and particularly the one who had raised him from the dead. You have the Pharisees who come, and they want to try to discredit what had happened here. And then you have these ones, um, you know, who were Greeks, meaning they were Gentiles, or at least Hellenistic Jews, uh, who were living a Greek lifestyle. And what do they want? All they want is to see Jesus. I would ask you, what camp would you fit into at this point? You know, are we the, the ones who are living for the miracles? We want to see those signs and wonders just for the sake of seeing something new or seeing something spectacular? Or are we those who simply wish to see Jesus? Do we come to Christ for the things that He can do, particularly do for us? Do we come for the spectacle? Or do we come for Jesus? You know, there are a lot of people who talk about, I want to go to heaven for. And there are reasons that people will have. I want to go to heaven to see my loved one who has passed. I want to go to heaven to be in a place where there's peace and happiness, safety, and provision. There are ones who say, I want to go to heaven to be with Jesus. And I think that's more along the point of why we are able to enjoy an eternity in heaven. Those other things are ancillary benefits. But the real reason to be in heaven is because we are going to have unbroken and unbridled fellowship with the lover of our souls, the Savior of our spirits. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
Do you understand right here? Jesus is no longer saying, no, no, don't say who I am. Though you know, though you figured it out, though I've done these mighty things, don't say it. No, his hour has come. He has been revealed as he is the Savior, the King, the rightful heir of the throne of David. But there's something that goes along with that, and that is there is the horror of the cross coming. He foretells the crucifixion, and he gives a call to extreme discipleship. When he says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, especially when the first century church read these words, they did not take it as some vague metaphor. They knew what it was going to cost to follow Christ. Brothers and sisters, do we treat this only as a vague metaphor? Do we follow him to the point of pain? You know, not to the point of death. As long as it's not painful, as long as it's convenient, as long as I can salvage my reputation, I will follow him. That's not what he's calling us to. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world, again, not in a suicidal way, but if you love anything more than you love him, even your own peace and comfort and safety and reputation, you know, he who loves his life will lose it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where was he going? He wasn't staying on that donkey forever. He was going to a humiliating death on the cross. The first century church wasn't called just to follow him to a comfortable, you know, Sunday afternoon. Many of them were thrown to wild beasts. Many of them would not accept deliverance if they just had said, okay, Caesar is a God as well. They would have been spared. And they would not do that. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. There's something at the other end of this. That's my point. You know, whatever your suffering may be, whatever your loss of reputation may be, there's something the other end of this. The point is not just the loss of those things, but that there is something to be gained on the other end of this. Brothers and sisters, are your eyes open to that? Is your heart open to that? You may be suffering something right now. There is something the other side of this. And it is coming so quickly. Don't love your life so much that you lose it. Love Him more. Don't love your reputation so much. I mean, the world doesn't love us anyway. The world doesn't accept us anyway. I mean, we, we found that, right? And He does. Where are we going to try to salvage some kind of reputation with the world when we have been called to and called by the lover of our souls, the one who has the most to hold against us and yet has received us? If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? How manly is Christ in this hour? He knows And he steps into it. 
He steps into this moment. He knows the horror that's coming upon him. And he steps into it. I don't think we understand the horror of our own sin. I don't think we understand the horror of the wages of our own sin. I think we minimize it. We kind of lawyer it away from ourselves. But he is stepping into this. And he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. I came to do something and I'm going to do it. And what does he say? Father, glorify your name. The response comes. A voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. He is enthroned in heaven right now. He is waiting to receive us. Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. The government may fall to pieces around us. Our country, our family, whatever else may fall to pieces around us. Don't lose heart. Christ is enthroned. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ, according to the book of Ephesians. Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. We are this close. We are so close. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So there are witnesses even to the fact that there is something going on here. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. He didn't need to hear this. This was for the sake of the people. He had this. um, He had this. Uh, moment by moment communication with the Father. And He was sustained moment by moment in a way that most people couldn't sense. But here it was revealed audibly. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to Myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So, he's giving us kind of a behind the scenes of verses 31 through 33. The enemy is going to do the things that will result in his own destruction in in bringing about the crucifixion of our Lord. And he also is pointing out that he will have followers from all tribes and tongues. We see that clearly in Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10. That this is true. You know, this uh, incident that seems like it's taking place in an obscure corner of the globe is going to have global reach. Verses 34 through 36 is a warning. Things will not always be clearly seen. So I want you guys to think about that as well. I think the Lord gives us vision. And I think our lost loved ones... The Lord gives clarity in moments of clarity. I've, I've prayed for uh, loved ones who have been on death's door. Lord, just give them a moment of clarity so they at least can use their free will. You know, just give them one more opportunity. You know, there are, are moments in our life of that extreme clarity. I think all of us in this room 
have come to that moment and have submitted ourselves to Christ. But I think the people around us, they have those moments that kind of fade in and out of clarity of who Christ is and uh, His claim on their life. And what they do with it, He sovereignly has allowed. Um, And so, He says, uh, But although He had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in Him. Uh, That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So here... Again, remember, signs don't automatically lead to faith. This is a case in point because you have Lazarus who's right there in the presence. And that doesn't mean, because all these people have seen this sign of Lazarus coming back from the dead, that people are putting their faith in Christ. Faith is not the result necessarily of miracles. And so many times we wish, oh, if that person got saved, that would have such an influence. Or if this miracle happened, then that would have such an influence. It really doesn't work that way. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Oh, what an indictment. They knew who he was. They believed who he was, but they would not follow him. I hope that's not true for any of us. It's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to be convinced that Jesus is who He said He was. There needs to be that act of following. In the book of James, James 2, you know, there is this sense that if we have faith, there are going to be works that are going to follow us. If I am convinced in my heart and my mind that something is true, that should lead me to action. And so if we believe that Christ is Lord, that leads us to action. That leads us to a lifestyle. The fruit of the Spirit should be evident in our lives. Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And he who sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Here we have a divine confidence of Christ. Christ didn't come to plead His own case. Christ didn't come to try to compel. He's satisfied with what He has said because He has said what the Father gave Him to say. You know, what an awesome thing. 
Well, brothers and sisters, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your...